Welcome to The Marketer's Journey, a podcast that delivers real conversations and fresh perspectives from senior marketing executives who share the journey they've taken and the buyer journey they create. And now here's your host, Randy Frisch. Welcome to The Marketer's Journey. I'm Randy, and today's guest has got into work with Lizzo. That is pretty cool. She got to produce an event where Lizzo was involved. And you try and think like, what kind of CMO would get that opportunity? It must be a massive company, consumer brand. No, it's a non-for-profit. And it's an amazing non-for-profit called Girls Who Code. And today's guest, Deborah Singer, has a fascinating story. She started her career at Google in communications, moved on to do her MBA at Harvard, and then came into the startup space, worked at Lulu, which is a company that later sold to Bumble, so helping to provide matches, and as she calls it, providing intelligence to women to find that match and empowering them. And then she shifted to powering a different type of women, younger girls who are trying to get into the engineering roles that they're often overlooked for. That's the goal at Girls Who Code. And today we do a deep dive into how it looks running a company like Girls Who Code. Now, as a CMO, we often think about the metrics like pipeline and revenue retention. And of course, this organization has to focus on getting donations in and empowering the right outcomes but it's also developing people. It's developing a change in our society and the way we approach a lot of the norms that we know are wrong and we know we can improve. This is a fascinating episode with Deborah Singer. Stick around, here we go, as she joins me this past week. Deborah, thanks so much for finding time to stop in and chat about your journey. Let's start with your career and how you became the CMO of an organization that I've got a lot of respect for, Girls Who Code. How did you land in there? Yeah, I, you know, in hindsight, I could tell you a story about how I naturally went from tech, saw the problem firsthand, and then um, wanted to join a nonprofit to to solve it. But it's it really actually didn't happen like that. I um, had just helped a startup exit. We had sold the startup I was at to um, the parent of Bumble, um, which is a big dating player and a different story. And I was uh, searching for my next opportunity, very much wanting to stay in tech. And I happened to be introduced to the founder and CEO of Girls Who Code, Rashma Sajani, and I kind of fell in love with her. both at like a friend girl crush level, like I immediately had a big crush on her. She's just like very cool, but also in her vision and what she'd been able to achieve and how she was running Girls Who Code in a way that felt much more like a startup than a nonprofit. Um, it was ambitious, it was urgent, it moved quickly, it was well-funded. And so I joined her team in, in kind of a leap of faith not really thinking about it being a nonprofit, but more about a founder I really wanted to work with. And that's something I've found throughout my career has really been a driving force. Less kind of the plans I have about the company I want or the function I want, and more about finding really cool people who inspire me, who I want to work alongside every day. And that's also what's kept me here for five years. Yeah, five years for a CMO, that, that's uh, pretty impressive these days, as, as sad as that is to say, but, but it's, it's great that you've got such passion. 
I'm I'm curious on one one element, and, and I don't mean to poke in any bad way, but no, you know, I, I look at the goal of Lulu, which is also you know aspirational. We want to match the right people. Yeah. But it's a very, you know, when you join a company like that, you're going for a big exit. You're, uh-huh. you're going for, you know, the multiples and everything that goes with that. Yeah. How did your mind shift to take an approach that took you more to a nonprofit side, but still a great cause and something scaling, as you said? You know, it they just didn't feel that different to me. At Lulu, we were all about disrupting dating for women dating, which had been this thing that was very much in person and about close connections, moving online. Lulu started at the same time as Tinder. Women had lost that reference check. And so we were about giving women intelligence that they needed to make smarter decisions. And so for me, it was about positioning Lulu as a disruptive brand for women. And Girls Who Code is very similar. And that's kind of what drove the founders of Lulu. It's, It's what convinced me to to join them was their passion for solving that problem. And it's, it's kind of the same passion disrupting a, a different area in this case, tech hiring that drove me to join Reshma. So I guess I, you're totally right that um, financially different things drive them. But I think the thing that animates my day to day at both companies is very similar. Absolutely. And, and it's, it's interesting the way you described in, in your answer there, this idea of providing intelligence to women at Lulu, which obviously is is the goal again at Girls Who Code, is is to provide those opportunities, provide insight to, to opportunities that may not have previously been associated or are really not living up to the ratios we want today. Oh, you're totally right. It's um, you know, when Reshma started Girls Who Code and when I joined five years ago, I really believed that it was a pipeline problem. And that's what tech was saying too. In their annual diversity reports, the numbers wouldn't change year over year. And they kept saying, we can't find girls and young women to hire. There just aren't enough young women with computer science degrees. And so for eight years, we worked on building the pipeline. And we now have reached 300,000 girls. 80,000 of them are in college. They're majoring in CS at 15 times the national average. It's not a pipeline problem anymore. It's, it's very much a cultural problem. These girls are there. They're ready to take entry-level jobs, internships, and yet they are still having kind of the experience that I think we've seen in the news when it comes to tech companies and their cultures, that they don't feel like inviting places for women. They're not inclusive in their practices. They're, I think, often unintentionally biased in how they're interviewing and how they're bringing in and promoting women. And so, yeah, I think it's it's very similar work in terms of disrupting culture, changing culture, and giving women a network of other women that they can trade information with and ask about interviews. And um, hiring is still very much an insider's game. And in tech, it can feel very much like a boys club. And so a lot of what we do is build sisterhood and community so that women can not only connect with other women at a company, but with each other to share information and share tips. So I'm, I'm so glad we're getting the opportunity to introduce this this organization, this topic, the goals to our, to our listeners. I, I want to kind of take a look at the role of a CMO in a company like that. And, and you hit again on some words that it hit me in the moment. One was, it's not a pipeline issue. And usually when you hear CMOs talk about pipeline, we're talking about revenue, we're talking about dollars. 
How do you think of becoming a CMO of a company like Girls Who Code? And what are some of your core metrics as a CMO when we're really talking about improving people versus necessarily improving bottom line? Yeah, absolutely. And and this is both something that attracted me to Girls Who Code from the beginning and has been one of the greatest challenges, which is we've built Girls Who Code into more than just a direct service organization. It's not just about the programs that we run, the girls we serve. We've always believed that advocacy, that culture change was critical to our work, that we were never going to be able to reach as many girls as we needed to reach to really shift the problem. And so um, working explicitly on culture change has always been part of the mandate. That's looked different. We've tried different things over the years from we had a 13 book series deal with Penguin that became a New York Times bestseller. We've done a album with Lizzo, a lemonade style digital visual album. We did a Super Bowl ad just this January with Olay. Moving culture and shifting the perception of what a programmer looks like and does has really been our North Star um, as a marketing team, but it is really hard to measure. Absolutely. So what, what, when you report back to the CEO who is, you had this crush on and you got to keep him pressing or reporting to the board, yeah. what are some of the metrics that they may be evaluating you on? Because I, th- I think some people looking to move to that opportunity that you found for yourself may be interested, but they may be wondering, am I going to be measured the same way I am as a CMO today in that high growth company where I'm attracting users in a different, different type of goal set? Yeah. So usually the top of the funnel for a marketer is something like brand awareness. We measure that. But what's unusual about Girls Who Code is we actually have like a a piece of the funnel that's even higher, which is kind of public perception and public opinion and culture. Uh, How young women, their parents, teachers, gatekeepers perceive technology as a field for girls, that girls are good at technology. And so we actually look to measure that type of public perception um, and to what extent does it change. And we try to attribute it to our various marketing efforts and campaigns, um, which is really hard. But a public opinion is something that um, we track really closely, that our board looks at, that Rushma looks at. We then look, of course, at brand awareness because Girls Who Code is such a descriptive name, we do find that there's a lot of parallels between brand awareness and general awareness of this issue. And then we look at metrics all kind of down the funnel as well. Are girls making it into our programs? Um, Whether that's our downloads for our free Code at Home activities, which have been in the tens of thousands since COVID began to signups for our clubs program, to girls making it into our summer immersion program or our college programming. That's great. I, I mean, such important things that you kind of wish you could update every CEO on, you know, as people are listening to this. When when you look back at, at your career to, to the point you are today, and, and of course there's a lot of similarities as we unpack between Lulu and the disruption that you're doing, but what, what perhaps at Google or when you did your MBA at Harvard, what from that has really prepped you to be the CMO in an organization like this? You know, it's a good question. I, I think there are a few things. One, one thing I learned, and I actually learned this in the interview at Google, was the importance of, of finding great people to work with. 
and looking for inspiration and vision in the, in the people that you're going to work alongside with. So I had no intention of going into technology or even comms or marketing out of college. I was an intellectual history major, and I thought I wanted to do my PhD in American history, and that was going to be my path. It was going to go straight out of college. I happened to drop my resume in on-campus recruiting for Google, and I had an interview with a man named Bob Borston, who had run the Clinton War Room in 1992 and happened to be the nephew of a really prominent American historian who I had followed. We spent the entire interview talking about his uncle's um, research. And at the end of it, he was like, look, if you like to write, if you like to influence ideas, persuade people, why not try comms for a couple of years? You can always go get your PhD after. And he was totally right. I never looked back. Um, well, I, I've glimpsed back a little bit, but, um, you know, I, I think he was able to show a vision for a future for that felt really compelling to me. And that has kind of been the model of finding other Bobs along the way that I followed that when I was looking for a job out of HBS, I knew I wanted to stay in tech. Um, I wanted to go to a smaller company because Google for all of its strengths was also a really big company. Um, and I felt my role was getting really kind of smaller and smaller rather than bigger and bigger. And I happened to get introduced to the founders of Lulu and kind of similarly fell in love with their vision for what they wanted to build. So I, I, I really think that people matter a lot. And that's something I learned at Google. That's something I learned at HBS. That's great guidance, I think, for, for a lot of people listening, is, is really surrounding yourself with it with a strong network, but not just the network that we think of on LinkedIn. It's it's the actual people that you get to interact with on a daily basis. Totally. I mean, and and you know this, we, we as a parent, we spend more time with the people that we work with than we do with our kids, with our families. And so I don't mean it lightly. Like it is, I think it can be draining to be around people who don't inspire you, who aren't kind, who don't kind of fill you up. And it can be the entire opposite in working with people who share a vision, who want to achieve the same things, who are kind, who are just fundamentally good people to work with every day. And I have found that in my career, prioritizing finding those people has been probably the, the greatest guiding light, much better than feeling like, oh, I really want this title or, oh, I really want to be in this industry. That's great advice. Definitely great advice. And, and you know, probably speaks to why you've been able to stick in a location, as you said, for five years, when you when you have those people around you, it's hard to leave. We're going to take a short break here on the podcast with Deborah Singer. We'll be back to unpack her buyer journey right after this break. Want to improve the buyer journey for your customers and your prospects? Look no further than our presenting sponsor, Uberflip. Named a leader in content experience by G2 and a leader in content activation by Forrester, Uberflip will help you accelerate every buyer journey by creating bingeable experiences that will allow your prospects to consume more content faster. Companies like Trimble, Wiley, and 3M are using Uberflip to power their go-to-market strategies, and we created one just for you. Head to uberflip.com journey to see how Uberflip can help you leverage the power of personalized content experiences. I want to 
pause here for a second and highlight a very important part of Deborah's career, which when you look at is a passion. It's a passion for doing something that you can connect with. Both Lulu and now Girls With Code have that for her. It's that opportunity to give back in some sort of way and empower disruption. For me, that's a big reason that I started a company, of course. Now, I can't necessarily feel always as good about powering marketing as you might be able to changing the social norms that are happening here. But I think a lot of us have to take a look and ensure that we have that passion, that we're excited to disrupt. Now, that doesn't mean we can't find ways to give back. One of the things that we do at my company, Uberflip, is we make sure that we find ways to give back in our communities as well. We do that through time. We do that through committing 1% of our growth revenue every year towards causes that can make a difference. I think having that passion for what you're doing or what you're influencing around you can really help you find a home that can be a big part of your journey. In the case of Deborah, we hear she's been at Girls Who Code for over five years, and it's passion that drives that type of commitment at the end of the day. All right, so Deborah, I went onto the Girls Who Code website for this podcast. And, and I thought a little bit about the hero image and the copy there. It says, we're building the world's largest pipeline of future female engineers. And I tried to think to myself, who is that trying to appeal to? Is that trying to appeal to the next girl who you want to get on side to realize her potential? Or is it trying to appeal to the person hiring that individual? How do you think of that headline? Uh, that's such a good question and, and such an interesting observation. Um on our website, we actually recently redid it and so asked all of these questions. Who is it for? What message do we want to reach them? In what moment? Our homepage is really for our corporate sponsors. So Girls Who Code is very unusual for a nonprofit. We are 90% funded by corporates, uh, which only makes up something like 5% of typical nonprofit funding. And corporates work with us because they want access to the pipeline they want engagement on this issue, and they want employee engagement. They want to get their employees to volunteer and spend time with our girls. And so uh, we do a lot of marketing for that audience. We have a whole development and fundraising team that is responsible for stewarding our donors and finding new donors and prospects, marketing our programs to them, developing programs with them. And then we have another part of our organization that's all about serving girls. Our, our theory of change really comes down to there is something that happens in middle school. We call it the middle school cliff, that girls go from showing the same aptitude and interest in STEM subjects as boys to believing that it's not for them and opting out, and it never recovers. And so if you can spark a girl's interest in middle school, and then get her to persist and stay in the pipeline, that's where we are gonna see the, the biggest change in girls going on to major in computer science and, and eventually get roles in technology. A lot of our recruitment effort and a lot of our organization is really focused around getting girls into our programs, partnering with schools, with libraries, networks where girls are already are engaged and, and bringing them in that way. And it's hard to kind of hold those two audiences side by side. Sometimes, uh, and at its best, when they're speaking in unison, they both want the same things. 
we get a great program like our summer immersion program, which is a program um, that had before COVID been in person, 20 girls, it's a classroom we embed in a technology company. Companies get all the employee engagement they want because the girls are in their company. The girls get access to amazing role models um, and get to see what it's actually like to be in a tech company. That's kind of um, a program where uh, partner interest and our girls' interests are coming together and working in kind of perfect harmony. There's also a program like our after-school clubs program, which we've had a lot uh, more trouble kind of getting corporate buy-in around because it's happening in schools and libraries and not in corporate offices and at 3 p.m., uh, which is not a great time if you're working to go in and do volunteering. And so being able to market that program, it's, it's really easy to market to girls, to gatekeepers like parents and educators, but it's been a harder sell for corporates. And so we really had to think through how do you talk to corporates about the longer term pipeline, get them to buy into the vision of what we're trying to create, even if they're not going to get access to those girls immediately. Right. So, I mean, if, if I'm to kind of recap on that headline that we started with, it sounds like the website is really there to start to nurture these corporations and a lot of your outreach to these middle school girls. And, and, and I'm sure there's, there's a range beyond that sweet spot, but I, a lot of that is grassroots from the sounds of it. It's, it's yeah. getting out of the office. It's not relying purely on digital channels. I'd say it's it's heavily social. So Instagram is a big okay. channel for us. And if you look at our Instagram, it's very clear it's for girls. Um, everything from the color to the voice, like we are speaking to a 13 to 18 year old girl. But we don't really see that girl going to our website. You know, if she is, she's landing on a landing page because her teacher was like, hey, this summer program looks great for you. Why don't you check it out? So a lot of our recruitment for girls directly is reliant on social and then reliant on grassroots organizing partnerships with organizations that work with students. Because we're also looking for girls who, but for girls who could, wouldn't have made it into the pipeline. We don't, it, it's easy for us to find the girls who are already interested in STEM. Um, but we're going to raise their hand. Right, exactly. Who raise their hand, who come to our website. Those are the easy to persuade ones. But the ones that we really want, and often we um, are really specifically trying to recruit historically underrepresented groups. So girls who are Black, who are Latinx, who are low income. And we have to go out and find those girls. We market to them through kind of trusted gatekeepers, their teachers, their parents, organizations that they're already aligned to their church, uh, Boys and Girls Club, um, because we think it's really important to show those girls that um, STEM is for them too. Absolutely. So I, I feel like I don't want to date this podcast because it's going to be an interesting one to listen to at any time, but I'd be remiss not to, to hit on the challenge of that strategy amid the pandemic. How, how is that shifting your outbound efforts to go and interact in those places where people would congregate, as you put it. It's really tough. Uh, it's both an opportunity and a challenge. I think the opportunity is that there are a lot of kids at home right now who are searching for content, a lot of parents and educators who have kids at home searching for content. And so really early in the pandemic, we launched our Code From Home activity set, which was content that we could market directly to students and parents. That was enormously popular. We've had more, close to 50,000 downloads of those activity sets. 
We also turned our uh, summer immersion programming, which typically is a seven-week in-person program, to a two-week virtual model and took that program, which typically served about 1,500 girls every summer, to 5,000 girls. And so there have been enormous opportunities that once you're in a virtual context, you can recruit from more places, you can um, expand beyond limits. We typically have been in tech hubs. Now we can serve girls kind of wherever they are. But you're right that it is also a big challenge that this pandemic has disproportionately impacted girls of color, girls from low-income backgrounds. They're more likely not to have access to Wi-Fi, not to have devices at home. And so wrapping around support for that audience is really critical. So we did things in our summer program like send laptops, send Wi-Fi. As we were finding girls who didn't have access, we could help bring them online and, and span that digital divide. But that's one of the biggest challenges that we're going to face, that we're facing both as an organization and as a country, that we are really at risk of leaving behind a generation of, of kids for whom remote learning isn't enough and isn't helping them meet the educational outcomes that we need them to, make, to meet. So 99% of the time, I ask our guests to not try and plug their product, not try and, you know, give us a call to action at the end. But but this is a different type of organization, different type of product. If there's people who are part of an organization that could support Girls Who Code, what is that call to action to them? How can they get started? Yeah. So if you are a CMO at an organization or a, a leader in an organization who cares about diversity and equity in your company, um, every company these days is a technology company or has technical workers, needs to hire technical workers, and you don't already work with us, we would love to hear from you. We run programs with organizations now in a virtual context that start uh, at a level that I think a lot of companies could, could do. And we provide employee volunteer opportunities as well as the chance to interact with girls in high school who are frankly the thing that give me hope right now. You know, we are, I don't know if I can say this, we are a week before the election or a couple days before the election. Um, It's a hard time right now to be hopeful or optimistic, but if if you want to be hopeful or optimistic, um, working every day with teen, teen girls is the way to do it because they are committed to activism, to finding solutions to what feel like some of our most intractable problems. And in our summer programs, the things that they come up with in just two weeks are remarkable. We had a number of websites and tools last summer that were all devoted to Black Lives Matter and to um, tracking uh, police reforms. We had an alumni who um, started a maker collective making PPE with digital printers and shipped like tens of thousands of units of PPE. She like has been her her mom was complaining that she's been staying up all night, like (laughs) PPE in her room, which is just pretty remarkable. Um, And so not only by partnering with us, you don't just get kind of access to the pipeline and employee engagement, which is really critical, but you get to teach this generation of change makers, how they can use technology to make the change that I think a lot of us want to see. That's great. Well, listen, and it's very easy to donate. I am going to do so now. It's actually interesting. I clicked on the donate button. It took me to a page powered by a guest who's oh, only here just, just like a few weeks before oh, this will air, which is Soraya. 
uh, oh. .org, uh, yeah. who's another great CMO. So it's it's great to see uh, you know two companies in tech working together. And uh, I will make sure to make a donation today from Uberflip. Deborah, stick around. We have one more question to ask you, but we'll take a short break here on the Marketer's Journey. So Deborah just highlighted a great example of using the right channel for the right audience. And I think too often we see companies will take the approach and say, well, we're just gonna blast our content, blast our positioning across every channel that's available to us. That could be LinkedIn, it could be Instagram, it could be website, it could be our email list. In the case of Girls Who Code, they acknowledge that they have two very different audiences. They have these corporations, and then ultimately they have the girls who they're trying to help empower and get to that next stage of learning. And I think the example of her saying, we're gonna use Instagram because we know we can meet these girls in that channel, and then use the website more for those corporate donors. It's a great example of being able to adapt. Now, don't get me wrong, it gets challenging sometimes when we have to find ways to use a channel where we may find different members of our buying committee or different members of who we're trying to get on board. That's where it becomes tricky and we have to find a way to use messaging that appeals to both or leverage personalization to adjust on the fly. So Deborah, you hit on the challenge in, in our discussion today through the opportunity you have. You have this opportunity where everyone's at home, they're connected. They're connected to code, they're connected to learn how to work. How do you disconnect in this world? How do you find time to not be connected 24 seven? Well, I'm a new parent. So I have a two and a half year old and a four month old. And um, while there are certainly a lot of challenges to having young children, one of the upsides is that they kind of demand attention. Like it is really hard to hang out with a two and a half year old and also like be plain spelling beyond your phone, although we have tried. But I, I'd say the, the greatest way that I disconnect is just by spending time with my kids. My daughter wakes up from her nap around five o'clock, which really signals to me that my work day is done. Um, and I go down and I play with her. I give her dinner, do her bedtime. Now with the the baby alongside, um, who unfortunately right now is just a bit of an afterthought. Um, and then, you know, I'll, I'll come back online once she's asleep at like 8.30 or 9. Um, but it's that nice kind of three-hour break. I think what is hard when you're working from home is to know like when you stop your workday and so easily bleed in the entire day. And so having her bedtime to do has been a really nice kind of forcing mechanism. Um, and she is, she's very vocal. It's, it's hard to hide. No, but it's nice. Oh, from a toddler. You, you say that, but it's, it's also easy for a lot of us to say, oh, well, I can't do bedtime right now, or, or I, I got to focus on work. But it's also important, as you said, to block those times and say like, this, this is that time for me as, as much as it is for my kid. And it's the time yeah. for me to disconnect. So it's, it's great advice. Uh, Deborah, this has been really a pleasure getting to know girls that code a, a little bit more, a little bit more behind 
the goals that you're trying to achieve, how you're going to market, the opportunities for you as a CMO and leader, I think has really given different perspectives probably to a lot of marketers listening in today. And I hope everyone listening in you know, checks out some of our other podcasts as well for all these different ways that you can have your career continue to unfold and how you can go to market in different ways. Thanks so much to Girls Who Code, to Deborah Singer, and to everyone for t- tuning in. Until next time, this has been The Marketer's Journey. You've been listening to the Marketer's Journey podcast. Big thanks to our sponsors at Uberflip, who help you fuel demand generation with content for an accelerated buyer journey. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify at uberflip.com slash podcast or anywhere you listen to podcasts.